This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. We welcome you to Bite Into It, uh, where we discuss computers, new technology, uh, games, surveillance, all interesting kinds of things that you need to know about. Uh, Andy Warhol once said, uh, in the future, everyone will have 15 minutes of fame. Uh, Ai Weiwei uh, has famously experienced this with his work, and the two of them uh, have been brought together for an exhibition at NGV International in Melbourne this year. Uh, Simon Leah Brown, have you, uh, have you had your 15 minutes of fame? Have you, have oh, you been... more than truly. Really? Yeah. Um, I won't go into it. It's, you know, it's, it's a topic for another day. How did you find the experience? Was it... Um, I would say it has its ups and downs. Okay. Did you end up being under surveillance? Were, were countries tracking you across the planet? Or? I have a document um, which oh. lists, like, uh, various uh, key points where I was and where I wasn't and what I did and what I said. Wow, this sounds very interesting. Maybe we'll talk about it at the pub afterwards. I think that's a good plan. <laughs> that's great. Uh, tonight on the show we're joined by Professor Hugh Davies who'll be speaking at Art and the Connected Future, which is a, a one-day forum on April 16 uh, here in Melbourne, uh, to look at some of the themes that come up in that exhibition and um, hopefully not some of your experience there, Simon. <laughs> it sounds fairly personal. Um, it's been a big week for the Melbourne startup scene with the opening of the uh, the new Slack office uh, in Carlton last week, um, a visit from Jack Dorsey of Twitter uh, and Square fame. Uh, Cassandra Wright, did you start anything in the past week? Uh, has there been anything that you started up that we should have been along for? Or Well, more of an adoption, but oh. uh, I started using a video as my Facebook profile picture, which oh. really is leaps and bounds ahead for me. You know, Has it affected your life? Um, have, have you got staff? Um, have you had to make choices about coffee? You know, it has been quite a stressful journey, I would say, really rocketing myself into the news feeds of everyone, them seeing my lovely face actually in motion. It's been overwhelming for a lot of people, I think, taking no, this scene by storm. No doubt there'll be uh, rounds of funding and, and uh, you'll be going international with that soon, I'm sure. Um, in a moment, we'll be joined by one of the darlings of the Melbourne startup scene, uh, Atlanta Daniel, uh, who's part of the team uh, behind a fund to uncover and grow some of our town's better business ideas. So we'll be speaking to her shortly. Um, before we have those chats, though, we'll first take a look at some of the news items that we really do need to tell you about uh, from here and around the world. It's been a big day for the big blue brand, uh, Simon. What's, Facebook what's been is happening? having its shindig in uh, San Francisco. It's F8 conference. Uh, Adidas sandals. Um, yeah, yeah, it's going to be going off. Footies galore. Yep. Uh, they've released a bunch of new APIs t- uh, for its messenger platform, uh, live video for its uh, free, basics, crippled internet service mm. that it is peddling to third world countries mm-hmm. uh, and uh, new developer kits, uh, which are, you know, a bunch of interesting things um, for that developers can integrate more seamlessly into Facebook, including uh, you know chatbots for Messenger and things yeah. like that. And also, uh, they they have developed a uh, VR camera rig, a virtual reality camera rig, yep. uh, that they're open sourcing. They say they're not planning on getting into the camera business, but 
There you go. It'll be on GitHub if you want to get into it yourself. That's a nice move. Um, yeah, so that conference goes for a little while and there'll be obviously more stuff coming out of that. Uh, keep an eye on it, um, especially if you're a developer or, or, or sort of work in that space. Uh, one of the other things that's interesting in that area is a uh, a new move from Google Calendar to bring machine learning uh, into how we accomplish our goals. So, you know, if you've got some fitness goals or if you've got restaurants that you want to hit up or, or, or what have you, um, Google wants to tell you how to do that for you, um, which is interesting. Uh, so machine learning, if, if you don't know what that is, is just a, a way to use data and um, sort of, I guess, begin to learn behaviours and patterns um, from, from um, data. And, and usage over time. Uh, so essentially how this works in your calendar app is if you say, uh, I want to run a little bit more, it'll start putting um, invites um, to events um, uh, into your notifications. So, you know, if there's a gap between five and seven and you should be running five kilometres, uh, you'll start getting little pings to say that's what you should be doing. So I don't know. This is... I kind of like the border between creepy and um, and smart, so I kind of, you know... What sort of goals would you want Google to help you with? Uh, I don't know. My, I'm, I'm okay with admin, like work admin and stuff like that, but my personal admin's terrible. Like, I find it so easy just to ignore that stuff and, um, yeah, so I probably do need any help I could get. I've, I don't know, I've experienced kind of to-do lists and that type of stuff in the past because I'm a huge procrastinator and I have all these goals that I just kick aside. But I feel that this would be more useful because it actually syncs with your Google Calendar that you're possibly already using. Um, and yeah, the only negative thing would be, oh, because all my free time is now filled up, I don't want to look at my calendar at all, which would be the possible backlash for me. I, I, I can I can see that. I can definitely <laughs> see that. We probably do have someone who's uh, well qualified to uh, tell us um, how we should be using this creepy technology and, and what's uh, a good use of uh, a third party's um, interest in our time. Uh, Professor Hugh Davies is Senior Lecturer in Network Culture, Remix and Media Arts within the Media Screen and Sound Program at La Trobe University. Uh, Hugh's going to be speaking on Art and the Connected Future, which is a, a forum coming up this weekend uh, in connection to the Andy Warhol uh, I Weiwei show. Uh, Hugh, thanks for coming in. Thanks, thanks very much. Uh, I should um, <clears throat> correct you on some of those details. I am actually uh, semi-retired from my role at uh, Latrobe at the moment. Okay. However, I do continue to teach there in the journalism program, but I'm also teaching at Swinburne University into their pervasive games lab. Which is, yeah, sounds great and, and keeps you busy. Yeah, absolutely, and also gives me a little bit more time, uh, which is good because uh, I come from a, I guess, a maker background. My um, undergraduate degree was in sculpture and then that moved into making games in physical spaces and that's what I'm doing again now. Uh, I'm making a game at the moment with um, Dr Troy Innocent who's at um, Swinburne University which we're presenting in Hong Kong next month which uh, is uh, a little bit all hands on deck uh, with the deadline looming but yeah really fun too and really um, really enjoying teaching pervasive gaming to I kind of guess a new generation of game study students of, of people learning to make games it's sort of a little bit away from the computers and a little bit more thinking about how people play in physical spaces and yeah it's great do you think some of the themes in um and and we'll talk about that at, at length I think um some of the themes coming out from this exhibition are, are around that how we like to play with technology and um when it becomes unfun for people to be involved with technology? I mean, what are the themes that, that attract you to the, to the show that you're going to be talking about? 
Look, I think there's a whole lot of very interesting stuff. I mean, I, I suppose I do come to this uh, exhibition from a point of view of interactive technologies and um, probably specifically looking at Ai Weiwei's practice and um, so much of which is online. Uh, he's, it's, it's a little bit unfortunate that in the, in the museum context, it's difficult to present uh, technological output, things like, you know, I mean, uh, a serious and major part of his practice is things like his Instagram account, uh, which is really sort of worth having a look at if you, if you want to get a perspective on what's happening in, uh, with, you know, refugees in Greece, for example. There's a whole lot of photos that uh, he's updating and they, they just don't appear in other spaces. But, um, but I guess what's also quite interesting about uh, his use of technology is that um, there's this sort of almost strange innocence about the way that he uses it and he's very positive and upbeat about the internet and... Um, um, you know that sort of moment, I suppose, in the in the in the uh, early to mid two thousands, where everyone was just talking about how the internet was great and how it was going to solve all of our problems in the future. He kind of speaks about it with that rhetoric. It's very easy to sort of dismiss him as like, oh, he's a he's a digital immigrant. He's he's come to it a bit late, and therefore he's he's a bit starry eyed about it. But he really has experienced some of the worst of censorship and uh, being arrested and and, um, being incarcerated for things that he's done in the online space. Uh, You know, he's had his social media accounts shut down. Uh, He's constantly watched through his social media platforms. So, and yet, nonetheless, you know, he still has this very kind of upbeat uh, view about it. And there's something very playful about that. Um, he, he continues to go in and not be jaded about it, but really uh, play with those technologies in that space. There was a, a, a great uh, moment in... Um, there was a documentary uh, a couple of years ago called The Fake Case where he was under surveillance in his yard or something like that, yeah. and he went through... He spotted somebody on the roof um, over there, went through, ran up the stairs and ran over to the um, people who were filming him and they were trying to pack up their camera yes. and do all of that. And he's like, oh, yeah, this would be the place I'd be filming me and, you know, this is amazing and, and fantastic. Yes. So where do you think that sense of humour comes from? Because I, I, I think that's so important to us. We're all so serious quite often when we talk about these issues and, you know, it's us versus them and it's good versus bad. And uh, uh, I think the grey areas that he um, explores are, are really interesting in that way. Yeah, look, I think um, uh, I think that sense of humour, that's, that's very much kind of... Um, I suppose part of his creative aesthetic, and that's one of the uh, that's really one of the kind of links that join him and Andy Warhol together. I suppose they've both got that sort of um, uh, Duchampian aesthetic. You know, they're very much the the uh, children of of Marcel Duchamp and that 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 kind of conceptual art um, aesthetic, which has been around for a hundred years, and. Um, and really just sort of treating reality as a bit of a playing space uh, whereby you you kind of have a level of, I suppose, unseriousness about everything and most of all in that space um, probably your art as well. And I suppose the other thing that should be said about, um, and this applies to both Andy Warhol and Ai Weiwei, is that um, surveillance is really kind of a central part of both of their practice. Um, Ai Weiwei now... Um, 
considers every moment of his life as an artwork uh, every living thing that he does every every activity everything that he's involved with is part of this sort of giant artwork so for him surveillance is not an annoyance it's actually the documentation of his practice um, it's a really central part of what he does and and of course people <clears throat> people are probably aware that um, um, the, 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 there were some photos I think about a year ago where he's pulling out um, uh, recording technologies which is found in his his um, his studio he found all of these little recording devices he came back from overseas and and pulled all these things out of the wall and out of the telephone. And um, and rather than uh, discarding them all, he just sort of was talking into them and setting off fireworks next to them and, and talking to them. And in fact, has put up security cameras. He's, he's redoubled his surveillance. Essentially, he's put up a whole lot of his own security cameras. There was a work in 2012 called Weiwei Cam, where you could log in and uh, watch him 24 hours a day on the internet. And of course, this is the hilarious thing about. Um, um, putting up cameras to to watch an artist who confesses to spending 12 hours a day online anyway um it's kind of uh it's kind of an absurd exercise what do you think uh his art says um from your perspective to a society of people who may not be as comfortable with surveillance then if he is um, embracing that surveillance and playing with it, yet the world's population is increasingly being subjected to more and more insidious forms of surveillance. Do you, do you think that there is anything in either Warhol's or IOA's work that can help us to reflect on that and what to do about it? Yeah, look, I think that's um, that's a very interesting question uh, about how we approach surveillance technologies. And I think that... Um, uh, and I think Andy Warhol is a great place to start with this as well. Um, surveillance was a very uh, deep personal concern for Warhol because um, aside from actually being spied on by the FBI, uh, he was he was making a, um, uh, a, a kind of um, a Western movie with homosexual themes. Uh, this is sort of 50 years before Brokeback Mountain and um, and it was very, very subversive. This is, of course, homosexuality was legal in um, the US at the time, so the FBI was um, spying on him for that. But Warhol had also long suspected that he was kind of living in this sort of Truman Show-like existence. He actually felt that nothing in his life was real. And in fact, in his in his book, The Philosophy of Andy Warhol, he describes when he was shot by Valerie Solaris uh, and, and almost killed. Um, he was he was um, really on the precipice there. And he, he says that he felt his consciousness leave his body and he looked down at the scene from from outside and the episode sort of led him to this profound epiphany that, um, that he'd been right all along, that everything was just television, that there was no... Um, uh, sort of objective reality that everything was television and, and, and it's kind of the other thing to remember about Andy Warhol is that uh, he was a uh, according to his brother a very pious Catholic 
and so uh, he did. You know, I, I think I think that um, there's sort of this intersection of uh, technology and religious oversight here. That you know that that, that perhaps God was using uh, television and technology to watch him at a, a kind of daily basis. But the point of this is is that this delusion, or whether it's a delusion or not, depending on what your um, religious concerns are sort of really placed him ahead of the curve in terms of being able to think about what it's like to live being watched permanently. And so, you know, I mean, people talk about Andy Warhol as having um, foreseen things like social media and reality TV, and, and he very much did. Um, and his way of operating in that environment was just to behave like the world was a huge TV show. Um, you know, he, he really just sort of wandered around the world um, behaving like people do on reality TV shows, just walking up to celebrities and saying, hi, how are you going? And I'd like to paint you and would you be on my TV shows, running this TV show in the 1980s? And that's very interesting as well because, of course, we're all in this reality now. We're all constantly being watched. You know, what, what is different about our screens now is that our screens now look back um, which is is this this hasn't happened before in history that that gaze is now reversed and I think the way that um, that Ai Weiwei approaches that is to treat his life not only as this this giant artwork but really as um, um, I suppose his his putting his life up to history to decide you know whether he's he's right or wrong or you know he's he's sort of um placing himself at the mercy of history if, if everything is going to be recorded once again it's actually quite a sort of religious concern it's where religion and technology connect do you think uh do you think um i or uh, eddie were just um slightly ahead of the curve in that we've I mean, obviously, that's kind of what we're hinting at here, that we're, we're all cottoning onto the fact that if we put ourselves out there, there's certain rewards and, and certain prices to pay. Do, do you think, um, I, I guess to your point, Simon, that um, the majority of people feel feel the same way, that um, there is a, a trade-off? If they can only get to a point where they're appreciated and people endorse the way they live and all of that, then they'll have the, the benefits of this kind of mechanism that we're building where, you know, we put stuff in, but stuff gets taken out as well without us even knowing it um i don't know i think that this is why shows like this are quite interesting and profound is that it does force us to to look at this aspect of our lives i mean um you know i I don't i don't need to talk about like every time you go to a a tram stop or whatever everyone's staring at their phone and everyone's updating and tweeting and one thing Mm -hmm. another and of course all this is may as well be kind of inscribed on the side of a pyramid you know it's it's there for as long as forever as as we know and it's i suppose the 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 difference about today and the, and, and you know i suppose the profound success of technologies uh, contemporary technologies is not simply the amount of ways in which we can be recorded and the the amount of data that can be stored but the surveillance used to be scary you know people used to be really shows like the truman show you know that's potentially the last dystopian surveillance um text 
Um, and even the, uh, the, uh, the German film, The Lives of Others, uh, I sort of cite that as a turning point where um, surveillance changes in that movie. Um, there's there's the, the, the scene towards the end of the film where um, uh, the poet in the movie discovers, like A. Weiwei did, mm. you know, these, these surveillance technologies in his apartment. And, of course, this is after the wall has come down. Mm. And he goes to the Stasi archive to find all the information on himself and, mm. and gives his details and the janitor wheels out this trolley piled high with um, information on him. And I think the key thing in that scene is the other people who are in the archive. They've only got a small folder each and they kind of look over at him with this sort of envy because this is the thing we kind of understand now that to be watched is... The, is to be wanted and it's to, to be, be wanted. Important, it's, it's, you know. it's it's the it's the it's it's the situation of the celebrity. You mm. know, it's all of those all of those files. That's content. That's likes. That's uh, that's retweets. So that to me is the astounding um, technology in itself. Is is the way that our perception has shifted to. You know, we're no longer hiding things. We're actively throwing things at the people who would be spying on us. So why, why, why is there this kind of like two-track thing going on here where uh, I'm just looking at some um, pure internet research um, on Americans and, and how important privacy is to them. And, and naturally, it's a little bit leading because they're being asked about privacy. Sure. But, um, you know, 74% um, believe it's very important um, who controls, um, who can get information about you. Um, uh, 67% of people not having someone watching you or listening to you without your permission and so forth. Yeah. They go out to dinner that night and they're posting what they had and they're putting their deepest thoughts up on, you know, their their Tumblr and, and all of that stuff. How, are, are we schizophrenic about this? Like, are we? How do you reconcile all these multiple approaches to uh, being surveilled? Well, I think that um, I, I don't think you can. I think that um, I think that, of course, you know, when you when you are when you poll people in that way. Um, they're going to give the "of course I would do the right thing" answer. Um, it's it's only through um, actually watching people's activities, mm. um, and you know we, we don't even need to watch now. We're, we're completely aware that yeah. um, how in, involved and caught up in the surveillance net that we are. Is there a huge difference, though, between the content that you choose to put up about yourself? For example, recording your own video that you're putting up, you choose the lighting, you choose the angles, you choose what you say in the content, or having someone else filming you without your consent, where you don't know if it's going to be showing you in the best light or creating this image that you've built to the world you know when if everyone's battling to be watched and to be entertaining and to get their 15 minutes of fame um i feel some of that disconnect warren is actually between what you choose to put up and what you feel like you have control of yep. and what you don't look and I, I, to me that is the the genius of how these things are, are being reframed is that um uh, they're, they're put forward as choices and as customization, and um, and there's a to, to bring it back to the um, the show that's at the, the NGV at the moment. There's a, a work by Andy Warhol, and it's it's uh, by um, Ai Weiwei, and it's wallpaper um, with surveillance cameras and and those little sort of Twitter icon birds on it. 
and uh, and it's all gold. It's I think the work's called the Golden Age. But it really just sort of reminds us that surveillance is just kind of ambient wallpaper of our life now. And we can, um, of course, we can adjust the 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 lighting, as you say. We can we can do all of these things. We can put sort of you know Instagram filters on things, but. Um, and I guess this is the thing is that it's it's operating at a, uh, a psychological level whereby and, and you know at a, at, a, at a societal level whereby we don't really feel that we're able to opt out I mean some of us can but as a, as a society we're not able to individually we feel you know oh, I might shut down my Facebook account or my, my Twitter account or whatever but I don't know that as a society we're able to do that and I think that's why the show is quite interesting because it really speaks to those concerns um, in a, I suppose, in the way that the arts does, which is, is you know, in through metaphor and through kind of, you know, psychological just sort of scratching at potential itches and that sort of thing. I love that your former title at, or your La Trobe University title had remix in it <laughs> and... Um, I noticed that there's uh, recent news out that the former CEO of Beatport is, uh, which was uh, an internet site for uh, downloading music usually used by DJs, is now creating a site specifically for fan-made remixes because the sort of algorithmic surveillance that is runs over YouTube and runs over SoundCloud and runs all over these sort of content upload portals is basically finding any semblance of a copyrighted product and immediately ripping it down. Yep. And he wants to find a way for uh, artists to be able to remix their favourite artist's work and for both them and the artist to make money off it. How do you think sort of this kind of algorithmic surveillance is affecting art the actual produce of art is is surveillance crippling artists is it is it censoring artists just by the very fact that it's there are people choosing not to say some things or are artists simply finding new ways to be brave yeah that's that's quite an interesting um question actually i think that um I mean, looking at um, Ai Weiwei, that's what makes him so um, subversive, particularly within, within China, and, and and we're now having some of that kind of effect in the West as well, and that, and that is the obscenity of his work, uh, because he simply won't self-censor. And, of course, this is the thing, is that when we when we all use technology, we, we, we kind of self-censor. We think about what's going to be appropriate and what's going to, you know, what's, what people are going to like, what um, when they're going to press like buttons. And, uh, and he doesn't do that. So he makes a lot of uh, crass mistakes. Um, and I kind of like that, you know, the idea that... Um, he's not operating within those... Like, at one level, he is. He's operating within that technology, and he's cheerfully embracing it. And in doing that, he's really reflecting what we all do. I mean, we might critique it, but really, we're just... We're really cheerfully embracing it. And, um, and yeah, I think that... Um, there's this this weird sort of position where, at one level, he's, he's critiquing... He, us through himself, which is always a bit of a slippery slope, you know, when you when you start critiquing people and things, quite often they kind of bite back a little bit. Um, but he's really doing that through 
through not self-censoring and uh, and that's given him a lot of trouble in China and I think it's starting to give him a lot of trouble here as well. Art in the Connected Future is uh, is on uh, this weekend. I think there's um, still some tickets available um, on the panel. Uh, got yourself. Um, there's uh, Simon Carrar, um from BuzzFeed, um, Tom Wadlow, creative director at uh, Google Creative Lab in Sydney. Um, yeah, um, Max Delaney, um, artistic director at um, Australian Centre for Contemporary Art. What do you want to talk about? Like, what's something that you want to sort of raise with with um, some of your peers there? Um, I think that I'm on a panel with Max Delaney. Okay. Uh, I think that that's that's the that's uh, what someone mentioned to me today, which I'm really looking forward to because um, he's curated the exhibition. And I'm really impressed with the um, with the job that he's done. I think it's. Um, to be honest, I, I don't think it's the best of um, Ai Weiwei's practice and in some ways um, it's so difficult to present this sort of work in the gallery and I'm not just talking about online work, I'm also talking about, you know, I mean, Andy Warhol, like Ai Weiwei and, and in this sort of Duchampian tradition they would get things, you know, existing products, ready-made objects. This stuff's in the gift shop, you can get it any time. Exactly. You know. And then put them in the gallery and of course, you know, viewers are left wondering, you know, do we, uh, should we be liking the redness of this Campbell's soup can or all that kind of thing? And, mm. and But of course the concerns that's going on with those things, I mean, you know, the, the Campbell's soup cans are, are a case in point. In fact, the whole of... Um, um, Andy Warhol's screen print practice. I mean, screen printing is really just sort of the the um, an old fashioned Instagram. Mm. And he used to he used to screen print all of the things that we now Instagram, which mm. is like food. Uh, he had Campbell's soup pretty much every single day for lunch and maybe dinner, um, and also uh, the cornflakes, which he would have every day for breakfast. And his friends and, and, and stars and personalities. And in the same way we kind of put filters on Instagram things, he, he applied these um, uh, sort of, it, you know, they actually look similar. Um, and, and I think in this way he kind of um, predicts things like Instagram. And I guess that mechanical side, the machine side, the, digi- the, the, the technological side of arts production, which is present in both Andy Warhol and Ai Weiwei's work, is something that I'd like to discuss. If you're in Melbourne, you should definitely get along to that. Uh, we'll put a link up um, on the page notes uh, after the show. Um, Hugh, thanks for popping in. That was very uh, illuminating. And uh, we'll definitely check in with you again. Great. Thank you very much. You're listening to Bite Into It on Triple R uh, this week with Simon, myself, Warren and Cassie. Uh, Melbourne has got a great uh, technology uh, industry um, where we'd like to think we're smart cookies and uh, it's good to have that validated by um, other people as well. Uh, we're now joined in the studio by co-founder and general partner of Signal Ventures, uh, a, I, I guess a, a startup fund. Um, yes. um, Atlanta Daniel, thanks for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, so you've you've been kind of living the dream the past couple of weeks. You, you look you look pretty tired, and you kind of you know you're, which meeting am I in kind of thing. But that's yeah. great. Like um, it's been a, a good time for you guys by the sound of it. Yeah, I think um, starting a fund is hard work, but so is starting a startup. You're you're raising money. You're trying to convince everybody that what you're doing makes sense. Um, it's exactly the same as being a startup founder. It's it's fun. <laughs> you don't sleep. So what, what's the, uh, I guess, short 
um, history of, of, of what you guys are doing. You've kind of got another partner and, and yeah. that person's got kind of like a US connection. And yeah. How did you guys come together and come up with this? So Neil, uh, Neil Robertson, he's, he lives half in the States and half in Melbourne or half in Australia. He came out here last year to Australia pretty much to retire. He's had a very successful career in um, startup and tech. Uh, we met, I think, at a battle hack hackathon, and we just started talking about the opportunity here in Melbourne. What what does startup need in Australia? There's not really anyone sitting. There are very few sitting at the early stage capital, uh, institutional capital. So that's 500k and below. Uh, we decided that that might be a really good opportunity to start servicing that area and bring in the US connectivity so that we actually had somewhere to take these startups back into the states malcolm turnbull can't do it by himself you know i mean even here in victoria we have an amazing um government putting a lot of um time and focus and actual cash into this industry as well we've got a 60 million dollar fund here that's just uh, been announced and just taking applications for infrastructures as you know a lay person r- watching coverage of, you know, internet business. Uh, the story that you hear over and over is a uh, startup uh, gets huge injection of capital, burns through all the money, never finds a way to make any cash and then crashes and burns and then they start it all over again. That can't be the way that it actually works. How yeah. how do... Do you find what's the risk that you're taking? And well, it's obviously risky. I mean, to invest in one startup would be a crazy thing to do. So we've we've brought in a portfolio play. That means with the ten million dollars capital, we'll probably raise. Uh, so we'll probably spend about on about thirty deals over four years. And that having that portfolio means that we expect a certain percentage to actually return that capital and enough of a return to make it worthwhile. But I mean. I, We've had so many successful startups in Australia and even in Victoria. If you go back to Seek, REA, car sales, um, all the way through to now, we've got Envato, we've got 99designs. We, we have such a history of this. And I think that perhaps if you're hearing about startups burning through cash, it might just be, you know, a, a fun story. Well, I mean, I was I was fully expecting that people were continuing to, be- to put money into this if it, if that was just the way that it worked. So yeah, obviously yeah. there are there, there are. We're still we're risk averse though. Yep. Still, I wouldn't I wouldn't say that we're really comfortable putting money into this space as a nation at this point. We sort of we understand property a little bit better. We understand resources a little bit better, and we're coming to a point where we see that those those things have an endpoint. And we need to start finding other areas to actually um, return our capital, new revenue streams. So there are sorts of certain types of startups that you're looking for? Definitely. Uh, so I think the thing that we do really well here in Australia is SaaS businesses, B2B, prosumer tools. So that means um, tools for professional consumers, Atlassian, Canva, things like Envision, um, Campaign Monitor. Obviously, Envision's not from Australia. Things like that we do really well, and obviously they're great businesses. Uh, marketplaces, one-sided, two-sided, whatever, we do we do those really, really well. We've got a great history of that. Um, personally, I have a love for technologies that enable communication. I think everything from I use I'm going to use our name again, Signal, which is an encryption uh, chat app. I use that regularly. WhatsApp has just started encryption all the way through to Slack. I don't think we'll ever 
not in in this little uh, ten year period. I don't think we'll find an endpoint to communication apps or tools. Maybe we did with uh, Lady Gaga, whose um, <laughs> startup Backplane um, burnt out and uh, sells assets. Um, apparently, they had eighteen point nine million dollars of um, uh, investment for essentially a fan site for Lady Gaga. Um, yeah, they got twelve point one in the Series A, mm-hmm. and then uh, another round. And uh, somebody's bought it, um, hoping to, uh, I guess, re-energize it. What's important if, um, you know, shooting around the world, spending money on tons of sparkles is a bad idea? What What's prudential and what's a good way to be careful with your money at the start? I think, um, I mean, in that case, they had multiple offices and they were spending a lot of money on those. I think what's really important is figuring out what is the problem you're solving, finding that product market fit and playing with ways to actually um, see what alters your funnel. Once you get those metrics right, once you start to understand that momentum, um, then you're ready to take on a lot more capital. Probably not 18 million, but <laughs> I don't. I don't have 18 million for you. Oh, that's all right. We we don't have a business yet that we soak, <laughs> soak that up, but we're, we're working on it here. Um, we did touch on a story recently about um, uh, I think it was with um, the person who recently came here to talk about Square. There was conversations around Mm -hmm. his his departure or Jack Dorsey's departure from Twitter and um, how founders are not necessarily good managers of of, of businesses. Do do you look at um, the management structure who the the founder or team is? Um, Are they going to grow something for five or seven years as opposed to there was an interesting piece in the um, New York Times about how staff can just be seen as resources because people who have great ideas aren't necessarily good people people yeah i think i think the journey of being a founder it's it's a tough one when you start out because we play it down at seed stage obviously um so that's when that's probably their first round of capital but the type of person it takes at that point in time versus the type of person managing a 50 100 person whatever organization they might have to be different people sometimes. Sometimes it works and you do find a way to grow and get that experience. And sometimes it's just, it's not what you were built for. So we we can do a lot of work to try and figure that out. But I think it's important if you're going to be a founder to to keep having access to people who know a little bit more than you about each stage that you're going through. Uh, in addition to that, while you're providing funds, is there also capacity to provide, I don't know, say mentoring or yeah. leadership or making sure that who you've picked are actually going to flourish? Yeah. On the, on the founder side, that's definitely something that Neil and I will be helpful with. On the investor side, we've actually, um, the concept that we had was to bring in a bunch of US venture capitalists into our fund as investors. And the idea there is, and we, we do actually have a bunch of those. So Dave, um, Cohen, Brad Feld, we've got some big names in there. The idea there is to actually expose that network to the Australian investor network that we have in our fund and provide that, um, I suppose layer of advisory or mentorship in some form of community as well to investors so yeah i think mentorship and, and and being there with that experience is one of the things that really will help accelerate our environment and uh, how did you come to this what, what was your background in sort of working in technology and yeah i've done everything 
everything? Done a little bit of everything. I worked um, in private equity before starting this fund. I had a few startups myself. Um, mm. Probably the thing that I was known for most was my technology recruitment business. Uh, Tetris was it? Tetris Digital, yeah. yeah. So for years, so I really sit on the I sit on the founder side, the technology side, and finding bootstrappers and and tech founders is my thing. Do you, do you see kind of a um, is there a generational thing in businesses coming through in Melbourne? I mean, there's that whole kind of um, I can't can't really say early Melbourne tech scene, but mm. kind of when people started um, popping along to. Um, uh, kind of uh, incubators yeah. and we had all those um, spaces open up sort yeah. of around five or six years ago. Do you see, is it a second and third generation coming through and you're kind of giving the advice that you'd been given? And Definitely. Um, do you feel maternal towards our, our, our <laughs> No. I think, um, I think we're a few years into the journey mm. and obviously we've had, you know, decades, decade or so ago, we've had, we've had a go at this. I think now we're probably maybe three to five years into this and I think we've got a little way to go to actually figure out if we are going to be a startup hub mm. in our region. I think we do have everything that's required for that. We have so much capital in this market. It's it's still a little bit risk averse. We have a lot of pipeline. It's I think that there's probably a gap between pipeline of founders and the capital will, willing to spend in this market. So I think that in that context, yeah, we, we definitely, you could call us maybe second or third generation. I'm, I definitely don't, don't feel maternal though. We've definitely had some poor startups come in here. Yeah. Um, the, with cap in hand. So yeah. we'll definitely connect with you after the show. <laughs> I think my favorite one was the, the fruit map and there was also the, um, uh, the app for, um, like keeping you off the booze, which was um, pretty oh, wow. good. Um, Yes. Uh, what, what are your next steps? What, what, what does the next sort of month or two look like for, for you? So we are, we are doing our... Um, so when you actually raise a fund, you go through this close process um, and you actually get all that capital into the bank. So that is well underway. We're um, enjoying that process a lot. We will start to... I mean, we've already been interviewing screening startups for the past month and a bit. So seeing more of those, we'd love to see lots more of those as oh, well. How can, how can people do that? So uh, signalventures.co mm-hmm. is our website. We've got a form on there. Or you can find me on Twitter. I'm Lance, L-A-N-T-S. Um, or on LinkedIn. I mean, if you can't find me on the internet, that's probably... A bad sign. <laughs> probably <laughs> a bad sign. Um, we're very approachable. So, just, What do you suggest yeah. for people who... Are coming to you with yeah. a pitch like how how can they not bore you if they've got a good idea and wh- you won't bore me with a good idea i think the the biggest thing to do is uh, in my opinion go direct always go direct to the investor don't don't look for layers in between um just find us we're we're online we're on social media we're on, we're on linkedin we're on the internet engage um maybe check what what some of our criteria are for our fund and see if that that's where you sit um, because if you walk into an, a meeting or a, uh, any type of engagement with a, an investor and not know that stuff, it doesn't look great for you. So do a tiny bit of research and figure that out first. Have you got one in mind, have you? We'll, we'll go in next weekend or something. Uh, yeah, I'd have to talk to you about it first. That one. Okay, yeah. we'll do that one. Listen, I'd, I'd take a variation on yo. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, Yo Yo was pretty big here on Bite Into It. For a, a, oh, I loved Yo. For a week or so, there was like a big spike in usage. Just but I accidentally Yoed in the studio once, and it was not a good look. <laughs> no, we did get emails about that afterwards from from the station. Uh, Atlanta, thanks for coming in. Um, thanks for having me. Good luck with the business. It sounds like you're off to a, a flyer, and um, yeah, it'd be really interesting to see some um, good ideas coming out of Melbourne and being supported by um, Signal. Definitely. Yeah, awesome. You're on Triple R, listening to Bite Into It uh, this week with Cassie, Simon and Warren. Uh, just a few minutes left in the show, but there are a few things we wanted to send your way. Uh, Cassie, you came across some research uh, about uh, women in technology that you thought was interesting. Yes, yeah, so we've been hearing a lot of stuff about the gender pay gap recently. Is it a thing? Is it not a thing? Um, there was an article on TechCrunch that has said yes. Uh, it is a thing for women in technology, but probably not for the reasons that we're used to thinking about. So when we talk about the gender wage gap, we think, okay, it can't be right that a business is just setting out and saying, oh, we're going to pay women this percent less. But in this survey and study, what they actually found was happening was that women were actually asking for less when negotiating wages. So in that way, it's less about the business is actually choosing to discriminate and more about women not feeling sure of their worth or not knowing what everyone else in the workplace was getting. Mm. They looked at some smaller startups where wages were more transparent and they found that that gender gap was really reduced because everyone knew what everyone else was getting. And in workplaces where women were aware of other people's salaries, they did ask for that much or more. But it's just the fact that there was a a dissonance between how much they actually could ask for and how much they negotiated for. And it's every good manager's job to pay their employees as little as possible. Yeah. So that was sort of happening. There's our startup idea that we could pitch to Signal. It's an app where you come in and you both read out your name and maybe you show your business card over the phone and then it just says... Simon, you're worth $85,000. <laughs> end, of, end of negotiation. You're a genius. We could do that one. Um, something that's also genius is some of the NASA projects that uh, have received funding recently. Um, what's making it to Mars and what's not? What do you reckon? But there are 13 projects that NASA has given 100 grand to oh. to basically uh, investigate whether they're feasible or not. Okay. Uh, so these are these are ideas that NASA has said. Here you go. Here's some money. Let's. It sounds like a good idea. Let's see if we can make it work. SpaceX, those guys are kicking our butts. We need, exactly. we need some fresh ideas. Exactly. So um, there's there's a whole bunch of them, obviously. Uh, my favourite, though, standout favourite, is the Braincraft. Braincraft? Which are uh, B-R-A-N-E, oh. as in membrane. Ah. And uh, it's... It's described as ultralight and nearly two-dimensional. And what they do is they're kind of like high-tech rubbish bags. And so they go up into space uh, and they can be guided towards space trash and they basically launch at space crash, Mm -hmm. let's say that again, space trash, envelop the rubbish and drag it. Wow. Out. So it's a way of cleaning up. You're basically these, uh, like, 
uh, uh, rubbish bags, in space rubbish bags that you shoot at trash and take them out. It's fantastic. <laughs> it's a brilliant idea. That's great. Uh, and, well, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to imagine it being launched, but, you know, plastic bags, you find them everywhere in well, trees and stuff like that. Well, they'll, they'll just get up there, won't they? Well, apparently um, they can be packed by the hundreds into the space taken up by oh. one sat- satellite because they're so thin. That's pretty excellent. Hey, thanks for being with us on Bite Into It tonight. We've had a lot of fun. Uh, thank you to Professor Hugh Davies, uh, who will be speaking this weekend um, at NGV. Thanks to Atlanta Daniel, and good luck with uh, Signal Venture. We've had a lot of fun. Uh, Simon, Cassandra, um, thank you very much for um, being on our space flight tonight. Thank you. Thank you, Warren. You have been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.